Welcome back to the Mellow Mama podcast, where I talk all things conscious living and conscious respectful parenting with the help of lots of great books, resources, and of course, my own experience as a mom. If you're new here, what's up? I'm Kate, and today we're going to do the first part, the book part, where I review important material that I think truly helps parents implement all the other things that I teach and talk about. And this particular resource is life-changing. I recently did a mini book series on my podcast regarding Eckhart Tolle's work in his book, A New Earth. I feel similarly about that book if you haven't listened to those episodes. I really genuinely think understanding the ego and the pain body are pivotal foundational aspects of being a more conscious individual and especially a conscious parent. So listen to those, read that material if you haven't already. I think it is extremely important and so transformative. But this book I really think is part two basically. Once we've understood the ego, we've understood our pain body or at least become more aware of it, figuring out those deeper rooted subconscious insecurities that impact the way we react to life as opposed to respond to it and the people in our lives, we can then move a step further and identify the needs behind those insecurities, behind those reactions. And when we look at the work of Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, in nonviolent communication, which is, surprise, the book that I want to introduce to all of you today and in the following weeks, we get actual tools to really communicate in a clear way what those needs really are, whether it be just to ourselves. I think as we go through this material, you might even realize, like I did, that some of us along the way, especially raised in a behaviorist environment where we were more lovable the less needs we had the easier it was for us to be around for our parents right the harder it was for us to have our needs met the less lovable we were i mean and this is just the subconscious programming that we received from infancy so with that being said so many of us again myself included have the experience of reading this material and reflecting sometimes thinking I don't even really know what it is that I need or am I truly aware or able to articulate my own needs without feeling subconscious guilt, shame, and hearing the voice so loud and clear of that inner critical parent that might label us in ways that are really not true but definitely not serving us in our self-esteem. I'm really excited to work through a few pivotal important chapters but I think reading this book is one of the best things you can do if you're on your way if you're in the journey of parenthood or hoping to be a parent one day check out nonviolent communication go order it right now on Amazon or find it in one of those cool secondhand bookstores or hopefully it's available in a library near you get your hands on this book and see how much of a difference it makes in the ability that you have to one identify those needs that you have identify those needs in your children becoming less judgmental and more aware of as i always say what the behavior is actually communicating to you and also identifying these needs in your partner your spouse your husband your wife and figuring out again how to actually work with that information and communicate clearly 
in, as Marshall Rosenberg refers to it, a non-violent way. One of the reasons that I find this book and Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, the most relevant parenting material is because of this opening paragraph that he says, believing that it is our nature to enjoy giving and receiving in a compassionate manner, I've been preoccupied most of my life with two questions. What happens to disconnect us from our compassionate nature, leading us to behave violently and exploitatively? And conversely, what allows some people to stay connected to their compassionate nature under even the most trying circumstances? He goes on to say in the next couple of pages that nonviolent communication, or NVC, is founded on language and communication skills that strengthen our ability to remain human, even under trying conditions. It contains nothing new. All that has been integrated into NVC has been known for centuries. The intent is to remind us about what we already know, about how we humans were meant to relate to one another, and how to assist us in living in a way that concretely manifests that knowledge. It's so interesting to review this material over and over again. I feel like every time you read a book, you notice different things, you hear different things in a different way. And I just love how much clarity it has given me when it comes to the most, in my opinion, foundational aspect of being a conscious parent, which is having this innate deep trust in your child's goodness, in their design of, you know, not having some sort of malintention toward you or other people, understanding developmental appropriateness for behavior and learning and our children's ability to regulate their nervous system and, and clearly communicate as opposed to making it about their character when they have a hard time or they're disappointed and don't know how to express themselves, right? To remain human. What's interesting too on that side note is that so often, you know, we step right into that mindset of judgment, of criticism, of fear. Oh, the child's bad. My kid is bad. I've better, I need to punish them so they learn to not be bad. And I need to shame them so that they're not bad. I'm scared of them being bad because I, you know, was punished for these same things. I could have never acted this way, etc., etc. But yet we, even with a fully developed prefrontal cortex and fully developed language skills, really, I mean, what we think are fully developed language skills until we read a book like Nonviolent Communication. <laughs> but we have the tool sets, right? And we still are reactive, even with young little people. And I think that this mindset shift that I'm referring to is the most important piece of conscious parenting because it really nips a lot of issues in the bud. I think when we start with this frame of mind of curiosity, wonderment, and connection, we eliminate a lot of problems from even existing in the first place as opposed to constantly operating from fear and judgment mode, which can run your day, run your weeks, and end up running your life and all of your relationships if you're not careful, which doesn't lead to actual fruitful relationships and wonderful, fulfilling 
intrinsically motivated days, the things that people really want, you know, where you really feel good and present and peaceful, especially with your kids. And that's why, (laughs) kind of a long tangent, to just say that him making the remark of we the goal of this work, the goal of this particular book is to give people that tool set to stay in their human zone, to like remain human and to not dehumanize other people with our behavior and our communication, even when we start to feel fearful, whether we like to acknowledge that that's what's happening or not, anytime that we're reactive, anytime that our response comes from that, place of shame and criticism and guilt and manipulation all we're all we're doing is trying to reassure ourselves about some sort of thing we've created in our mind that we think is going to keep us safe for example thinking okay if I just make my child afraid of me then they'll never do that again and they'll be good they they won't be perceived as bad they won't be bad and then that means I'm a good parent it's all rooted in fear so learning how to remain human, and I honestly, the more I learn about parenting, child psychology, human psychology, and well, not just young people, but I think everything really goes back to these met and unmet needs and how people get into survival mode, whether or not their needs are met, and, and how often are we operating in survival mode versus being present in our body And in that rest and digest state that we're supposed to be operating in, unless there's an actual emergency. (laughs) Marshall Rosenberg goes on to say, as NVC replaces our old patterns of, and I want you to listen closely to these and see if they're things that show up in your style of communication, whether you like it or not, defending, withdrawing, or attacking in the face of judgment and criticism, We come to perceive ourselves and others, as well as our intentions and relationships, in a new light. Resistance, defensiveness, and violent reactions are minimized. When we focus on clarifying what is being observed, felt, and needed, rather than on diagnosing and judging, we discover the depth of our own compassion through its emphasis on deep listening to ourselves as well as to others, nonviolent communication fosters respect, attentiveness, and empathy, and engenders a mutual desire to give from the heart. And isn't that the goal? Isn't that what all of us want? We want to be operating in that space where there, we recognize this different depth to our compassion, and that it really is something that I am really deeply passionate about in terms of my own reparenting and conscious parenting journey I think that sometimes when people are new to these concepts and you might be new listening it's okay and you might feel what I'm about to say you might feel like this and I think sometimes when people are new to the concepts and they get into fear mode because it's new information it's a different way of looking at the parent-child dynamic, it's an, just a totally new perspective and foreign, and it feels, again, like it could be a threat to an existing system, and people, again, will neglect to even think, 
is the existing system effective? Does it work well? Are people happy? Are people highly functioning? Are our relationships thriving? But because they're in fear mode, they can't even really think critically about all of those questions and really answer them honestly with integrity. Rather, they stay in fear mode, try to protect themselves, try to protect this illusion that we've we've cultivated. And they miss out on the ability to really actually assess things from a truly compassionate place. Looking at, for example, our relationship dynamics with our own parents, this this comes up pretty quickly in the whole parenting our own children process. We start to reflect on our own childhood experience as conscious parents especially, and sometimes that's very uncomfortable for people. They don't want to acknowledge the reality of their own childhood and adolescent experience because they feel like maybe by doing so, they're disrespecting their parents. I've talked about this in a few podcast episodes, but especially with my own mom, and I look forward to interviewing my own dad next week. I hope you guys look forward to that conversation. But it's it's a huge common fear for people that are implementing conscious parenting practices. Well, if I do this, if I do something different, especially if I speak openly about what I'm doing differently or have to address something that I'm doing differently, it kind of means that you, that I'm ungrateful for the experience that I had or that I'm bashing my parents or that I don't respect my parents or don't value everything that they did for me, etc., etc. And it's just not true. In fact, the more I learn about myself and my experience, the easier it is for me to understand the experience that my parents were having and kind of step into the mindset of like, wow, they're, they're really new to this too. <laughs> you know, Like this is their first go around at life and they're new too. And they were so new raising me and they didn't have this resource and that resource and this book and this awesome person. And I mean, I don't know. I think if anything, it makes me respect their efforts more. It makes me respect every person that I interact with more to be in this nonviolent communication zone of trying to figure out those basic things. He says, what's being observed? What's being felt? What's being needed? And let's stop diagnosing and judging so that we can get back to our compassionate human nature. And in doing so, we recognize the humanity in other people. And therefore, we get to like these, these deeper depths of our compassionate nature. And it, it's a really beautiful thing to experience. Moving forward, he has a cute little poem. I guess it's kind of really minimizing it by calling it a cute little poem, but I I really think it's beautiful, so I will read it to all of you. He says, I never feel more given to than when you take from me, when you understand the joy I feel giving to you. And you know my giving isn't done to put you in my debt, but because I want to live the love I feel for you, to receive with grace may be the greatest giving. There's no way I can separate the two. When you give to me, I give you my receiving. When you take from me, I feel so given to. And this is actually by Ruth Bebermeyer. And he, I've seen him recite this in like a 
in-person lecture in song form. And it's really beautiful to reflect on just for a moment what it feels like to truly be seen and heard and understood, which are, in my humble opinion, what contributes to every quote, bad behavior that we see in the world, every inhumane, horrific act, people just out of, again, the reason I really recommend reading and reviewing my podcast episodes on A New Earth is because this is the root of the ego in people, you know, this deeper rooted insecurity that we're not worthy, that we're not lovable, and that we have to work really, really hard to be those things, and that people can take that value away from you, and that worthiness has to be earned, and it can be, you know, temporary, and that's the example that we've we've lived out from the time we were small, like, you know, constantly having conditions around being worthy of being seen and heard and connected with, loved on, cared for. Um, and I think that this poem, whether sung or not, or spoken like I just did, it kind of exemplifies that very simple concept that it feels really, really good to be seen. And it also feels really good to truly see another person, to be able to be curious about someone else. I think it's the epitome of being present, the epitome of not operating in that survival fear state to be able to slow down enough to wonder about the perspective of someone else is extremely powerful, but also extremely life-giving. And sometimes I think this is a really important reminder as parents who are moving into this different mindset and moving into a different practice with their own children that they they didn't experience in their own childhood and adolescent experience, I think sometimes we think, okay, I'm doing this for my kids. I'm doing this for my kids. Well, when I know those of you listening that have made a practice of conscious parenting and that it's sort of not become, I don't like to say easy for, you know, none of us are perfect parents, but for those of us that it feels comfortable to, you know, it's, it's second nature. It feels good. I know you have to be nodding. Like it feels so good to like make my children feel seen and heard and understood, not just because in a, in a deeper sense, it meets those needs in our own inner child. It sends the message to our own inner child, like, the things that you cared about were important. The the little things that mattered to you mattered. Your your voice did deserve to be heard. You did deserve to be seen and understood and for your perspective to be important. And and it can be now, right? Like there's that deeper level, but there's also just this beautiful I think innate need for connection that we share, not just for being seen, but to see others and to experience that deeper connection with the people around us. It is, it's rewarding on both ends. It's not just about, okay, I've got to change some uh, patterns. I've got to break some cycles for my kids. It's like, oh, you, this is a life-giving experience. It's not just about the tactical. And that's one reason that I truly love emphasizing conscious parenting because I just think that that right there alone is such a big difference. Uh, I think so many 
people are just trying to fix, just trying to eliminate certain issues, just trying to get through the day. Again, all I hear is survival, fear, and more survival mode, (laughs) which isn't serving anyone. And what we want to do is operate in this space of being seen, being heard, being connected with and understood, and making sure that the people in our life also feel the same way, that they experience those things as well. And now that I've basically said I don't like focusing on the tactical, we're going to get tactical. We're going to talk about the basic principles of nonviolent communication. The four components of NVC start with number one, observations. The trick, he says, is to be able to articulate an observation without introducing any judgment or evaluation to simply say what people are doing that we either like or don't like. Next, we state how we feel when we observe this action. Are we hurt, scared, joyful, amused, irritated? And thirdly, we say what needs of ours are connected to the feelings we've identified. An awareness of these three components is present when we use NVC to clearly and honestly express how we are. Here's an example. A mom might express these three pieces to her teenage son by saying, Felix, when I see two balls of socks under the coffee table and another three next to the TV, I feel irritated because I am needing more order in the rooms that we share in common. She would follow immediately with the fourth component, requests. A very specific request, Would you be willing to put your socks in your room or in the washing machine? The fourth component addresses what we are wanting from the other person that would enrich our lives or make life more wonderful for us. Thus, part of the nonviolent communication process is to express the four pieces of the information very clearly, whether verbally or by other means. And the other part consists of receiving the same four pieces of information from others, This is crucial. I think sometimes, especially people that are growing and learning, have you ever met somebody that's like going to therapy and they kind of turn it into their entire personality and they sort of like turn it into a weapon (laughs) to, again, protect themselves and their sense of identity and value. And instead of it becoming an actual growth and learning experience, they turn it into other people are not growing like I am. Other people just aren't doing the work like I am. (laughs) I feel like I've encountered people like this. And every time I'm like, oh man, it reminds me of actually that passage in Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, where the man is riding the bicycle who's just gotten rid of all of his belongings. And then he sees the man in the sports car and is like, ha, I'm so much more enlightened than that guy. And that's clearly paraphrased, but you know what I'm saying? He's, he's judging and looking down upon the guy in the sports car because he views him as materialistic and he has probably has a big house, whatever, you know, the thoughts that could be happening. And Eckhart Tolle is like, this guy is clearly, you know, still in his ego. He's, he's in his ego about being free of the ego, about free, being free from different attachments and, and having physical things. But in doing so, he's still making it his identity, making it what makes him valuable as a person. And then even taking it a step further to imply that other people are not as valuable as him. This is a side note, obviously, but it's so important for us to remember that piece of the listening 
also. We're not just going to say like, okay, I now communicate nonviolently and I know that I need to start with observe, observing, right? What do I see? I'm going to say that clearly. I'm going to say how I feel about it. I'm going to state my needs and I'm going to make a request. And then if they don't just like respond to me exactly as I want them to, then then all of this goes out the window. I think, again, this is a common pattern I see in a lot of different parenting teaching philosophy where it's like okay here's your five-step process to get your child to do what you want or to be who you want them to be and what do you do if that fails right because you can't own a person you can't control a person I always think like how do people have to feel so discouraged when they receive this advice and they are in fixing mode all the time it just has to be so exhausting and discouraging but that's neither here nor there. I just really wanted to emphasize the listening piece as well as the communicating in this way piece. So let's start um, by keeping our attention focused on those four things and it will make a very big difference in all of your interactions moving forward if you can implement them. And speaking of quick fixes or simplified, oversimplified strategy, I like that he actually clarifies in the next page that while we like to keep those four things in mind, observations, how we feel in relation to what we observe, needs, values, desires that create our feelings and the feelings of others, and then of course the concrete actions that we request, it's not a set formula all the time. It's something that adapts to various situations as well as personal and cultural styles. He says, while I conveniently refer to NVC as a process or language, it is possible to experience all four pieces of the process without uttering a single word. The essence of NVC is our consciousness of the four components, not in the actual words that are exchanged. And when it comes to applying nonviolent communication in our lives and in the world, I'd like to remind you that although my platform is very devoted to sharing about the parent-child relationship and the reparenting process, figuring out the parts of you and why you respond the way that you respond, nonviolent communication and everything that I share is relevant for any relationship dynamic, intimate or not. This is great to implement in family dynamics, schools, different organizations and institutions. This is relevant for therapy and counseling relationships, diplomatic and business negotiations, any type of dispute or conflict of any nature when applying nonviolent communication can change entirely and become solution-based and full of critical thinking and collaboration and ultimately peace and compassion. The other thing I wanted to mention in regard to the fact that this isn't just for parents, this isn't just for people wanting to parent peacefully and consciously, I want to remind you of the fact that more is caught than taught with our children. We teach, I mean, I could just list a few quotes here, you know, we teach from our being, we teach what we are, or as Roy Smith says, we are apt to forget that children watch examples better than they listen to preaching. Every interaction that we have matters if we are desiring 
raising children that are also aware and emotionally intelligent and can express themselves clearly and peacefully, nonviolently, can communicate with just ease and, and peace and humanity and compassion, all these things that we are trying to accomplish ourselves with our children and with other people like we we teach that through our being as we grow as we develop these tool sets we are teaching our children how to do the same we're giving them lifelong tools lifelong skill sets for their own marriages for their own work environment relationship dynamics one day for their own families for even just the way that they interact with I don't know any like a, a teacher at school, a coach, a teammate. There are going to be so many times in life where you will be so grateful that your children and you have developed this as the foundation of the way you communicate with others and, and interpret and listen to others as well. All that said, I want to move on to communication that blocks compassion or as Marshall Rosenberg refers to it life alienating communication which I think is such a beautiful way to refer to this because again that main goal is getting to that deeper rooted connection that I see you and you see me and and we are human (laughs) we're just like human together having this experience and and we are striving to work as a team to collaborate and again this doesn't have to be some sort of just for intimate relationships thing it's a it's a human to human thing and I think it's beautiful to recognize what's stopping us from having that experience um, I think it's it's really beautiful and again very in alignment like these books go hand in hand if you haven't listened to the old podcast episodes my mini book club series Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth listen and you'll be like, oh my gosh, this is so perfect. It's like a perfect segue into nonviolent communication. So moralistic judgments, he says, are one kind of life alienating communication. It's something that implies wrongness or badness on the part of people who don't act in harmony with our values. Such judgments are reflected in language. The problem with you is that you're too selfish or she's lazy they're prejudiced. It's inappropriate. Blame, insults, put-downs, labels, criticism, comparisons, and diagnoses are all forms of judgment. I want you to take one moment to hear just for a reparenting exercise um, and also just to take a breath for a second, you know, just like a little, what is it, seventh inning stretch? Just take a minute with me and if you can, please don't. If you're driving, put a hand on your heart and one on your abdomen, you know, just, I want you to breathe, like notice your breath. It's a good way to know if you're still alive, you're still breathing (laughs) and actually get into your body and get present. If you ask yourself if you're breathing, you really can't focus on anything else. So it's a really great marker if you're somebody that struggles with anxiety or tension or just overall feeling like, Ah, I'm in go, go, go mode all the time and I can't turn it off. Just notice if you're breathing. I want you to count in for four. Breathe in. Two, three, four. Hold it here for a second. And exhale. Breathing out any tension. Two, three, four. And do that one more time. Hold it. Hold it right there. 
and exhale. And you can kind of shake yourself out a little bit, give yourself a little reset while you listen. I want you to ask the question, how much of my time when it comes to the thoughts that run through my mind all day is dedicated to the inner critical parent that utilize these sorts of life alienating communication with me from the time I was very small are these the voice are the voices of these people still just hanging out in your subconscious mind do you let them hang out there and talk to you you know, do you blame yourself, insult yourself, put yourself down, label yourself, criticize yourself, compare yourself, diagnose yourself all day long? I know I do. <laughs> so I think that this is an important step forward in terms of making yourself more aware of that voice, separating yourself from the voice of the inner critical parent or person in your life that taught you those things that taught you those patterns um, and taught you you know conditioned you with those thought patterns remind yourself that you can take your thoughts captive you can absolutely remind yourself that you are the thinker not the thoughts that you're experiencing at any point you can just say oh well, hold on gonna take that and yeah i'm gonna throw that away (laughs) that is not helpful that is in fact life alienating even from yourself it takes you away from the ability to just be compassionate with yourself be more curious about yourself be more more understanding about where you're at even in your day-to-day life and if you want to take it a step further in terms of the reparenting process asking yourself questions like that throughout the day you can get to the root. I mean, and sometimes it's really not hard. You'd be like, oh yeah, that's definitely the voice of my mom. I mean, 100%, that's the voice of my dad. Or yeah, I can hear that in my dad's voice. I, I hear that from people all the time. Oh my gosh, like I, I honestly can hear certain things in my mom's voice. And I totally relate to that. And it's a beautiful thing to sort of unravel and undo and also do so in a compassionate way. Remind yourself, all of those things were just projections of fear too on their end. They're just so scared and insecure and that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We we know now and we have the ability to, again, reparent ourselves and be the loving parent and create that loving inner voice if we so choose. He writes here, the Sufi poet Rumi once wrote, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Life alienating communication, however, traps us in a world of ideas about rightness, wrongness, a world of judgments. It is a language rich with words that classify and dichotomize people and their actions. When we speak that language, we judge others and their behavior while preoccupying ourselves with who's good, bad, normal, abnormal, responsible, irresponsible, smart, ignorant, etc., When our attention is focused on classifying, on analyzing, and determining levels of wrongness rather than on what we and others need and are not getting, thus, if my partner wants more affection than I'm giving her, this is now Marshall Rosenberg writing, she is needy and dependent. But if I want more affection than she is giving me, then she is aloof and insensitive. Have you been there? Have you operated there? (laughs) 
Again, this is a way to subconsciously protect ourselves. This is the ego. If we need to label, shame, judge, diagnose, we're trying to do so to protect our sense of worth and identity. We can show some compassion to ourselves there. We don't have to be like, oh, dang it. Shoot, um, maybe I'm violent communicator. <laughs> I'm a bad person. I've had these thoughts. I've definitely expressed these thoughts. I've said these things. Um, it's okay. You're just trying very hard to have your needs met. And when they're not met, then you're like, well, I might as well protect myself and remind myself I am worthy of those things. Um, you're just bad. That's why <laughs> my needs aren't met because you are the worst. Um, and we might say that in lots of different ways. If my colleague is more concerned about details than I am, he is picky and compulsive. On the other hand, if I'm more concerned about details than he is, he is sloppy and disorganized. It's my belief that all such analysis of other human beings are tragic expressions of our own values and needs. They are tragic because when we express our values and needs in this form, we increase defensiveness and resistance among the very people whose behaviors are of a concern to us. Or if people do agree to act in harmony with our values, they will likely do so out of fear, guilt, or shame because they concur with our analysis of their wrongness. And this is huge for parents to hear, okay? Especially if you are on the fence. If you're somebody that's like, ah, I just don't know. I just do not know if I buy into this whole conscious parenting thing. Like, does this, quote, work? Is this going to work? Is my child going to... I mean, they, a lot of time when, when I have people say this to me, does it work? They still have... They're operating from this place of fear and this subconscious desire to control. To control and own the child and operate there. And that's that's really what they mean when they say to me, does it work? Like, will I still have control like I will I, will I, my child be obedient to me and um, it's such a hard thing to respond to sometimes for me because you know there's a huge catch-22 in conscious parenting the more you build the relationship with anyone the more influence you inevitably have so in a way yes you know you will have more quote control over a person it will work I guess if that's your goal, but even, I mean, our children can feel the difference between an authentic connection being seen and heard and someone who still sort of views them as more of an object than a whole person worthy of real respect from infancy. He says, we all pay dearly when people respond to our values and needs, not out of a desire to give from the heart, but out of fear, guilt, or shame. Sooner or later, we will experience the consequences of diminished goodwill on the part of those who comply with our values out of a sense of either external or internal coercion. They too pay emotionally, for they are likely to feel resentment and decrease self-esteem when they respond to us out of fear, guilt, or shame. Furthermore, each time others associate us in their minds with any of those feelings, the likelihood of their responding compassionately to our needs and values in the future decreases. So this isn't just relevant, obviously, like I said, for the parent-child relationship, but this is an important detail to 
think about if you're somebody who is struggling with the concept of conscious parenting and really trying your best to see the light, like have that aha moment, that epiphany of like, okay, this actually makes sense. What he's saying here is a really, really good reminder for anybody in that zone. Anybody that's doing what you want out of fear, guilt, or shame, especially because they concur like, okay, yeah, I am bad that is only going to create problems for you in not just the short term. I mean, I feel like obviously in the long term, but even right now it creates such an immediate rupture when that's the frame that we operate from. Like, why why don't we want to be better than that? That is such a low bar. Okay, I'm just going to make you scared of me. I mean, I'm like, can we try harder, everybody? Like, that's... That's what we're going to resort to, scaring people, scaring people into thinking that they're bad and they're not lovable. I mean, gosh, I, we, I think there's a better strategy. It's, it's actually crazy to me that it's taken a long time for people to think, maybe there's a different way. <laughs> maybe we could possibly do this differently. I don't know. Just saying. Um, also, shout out to whoever the very first person was that was like, mm, I don't know if this is working, you know, like this, is this really the best we've got? Anyway, so we all pay dearly when people respond to our values and needs, not, not from an intrinsic place, but from a desire to please us or to not be bad or out of fear or shame or guilt. I mean, this same thing applies to a romantic partnership. The more in which we use these behaviorist tools of manipulation. We use this life alienating communication. And I've been there. We, we have, I'm sure, all been there. Um, we, you know what happens. It just makes things way harder. And even if you get what you think you want, you're like, you can feel if it's not authentic. You're like, oh, I know they're just doing that because I've complained about it in the past. And like I've, you know, we've had, discussion about it in the past or arguments about it in the past like it's not from a sincere place that they're doing it and then it it builds that resentment that he's referring to and it's not just on one end it's on both like oh gosh it's such a unhealthy uncomfortable cycle that most of us find ourselves in I I think Um, and so I'm really excited to be reviewing this book because it's just every time it hits home And every time I'm like, oh yeah, I need to really put in the work and make this just such a consistent practice. Marshall Rosenberg clarifies here, it's important not to confuse value judgments and moralistic judgments. Everyone makes value judgments as to the qualities we value in life. For example, we might value honesty or freedom or peace. Value judgments reflect our beliefs of how life can be best served. We make moralistic judgments of people and behaviors that fail to support our value judgments. For example, violence is bad. People who kill others are evil. Had we been raised speaking a language that facilitated the expression of compassion, nonviolent communication, (laughs) we would have learned to articulate our needs and values differently and directly rather than to insinuate wrongness when they have not been met. For example, instead of, violence is bad, we might say instead, I'm fearful of the use of violence to resolve conflicts. I value the resolution of human conflicts through other means. 
even just reading that example really clearly demonstrates how different it feels to be both on the giving and receiving end of nonviolent communication. And it also, to me, really exemplifies how helpful it is. There's nothing helpful about saying people that kill others are evil or violence is bad. Okay, I mean, there's really nowhere to go from there. It's not, it's not really helpful. It's not really contributing any, anything positive. And so many of us operate there in the moralistic judgment zone because, yeah, I mean, for sure, I think it's a pretty commonly shared value that <laughs> violence is not, uh, is scary, really. Like it said, I'm fearful of the use of violence and I prefer conflicts to be resolved in another way. But we, to communicate it in that way gets us somewhere where we start thinking about ideas, we start thinking about solutions, we start thinking about what we actually need, what requests can we actually make. This is powerful, not just, again, on the intimate, individualized relationship scale, but on a global scale. I mean, think of how different interactions would be if we, if we worked from this foundation. It would be amazing. He says, it does not surprise me to hear that there is considerably less violence in cultures where people think in terms of human needs than in cultures where people label one another as good or bad and believe that the bad ones deserve to be punished. Eckhart Tolle refers to this as well in A New Earth. Again, go check those out. In 75% of the television programs shown during hours when American children are most likely to be watching, the hero either kills people or beats them up. This violence typically constitutes the climax of the show. Viewers, having been taught that bad guys deserve to be punished, take pleasure in watching this violence. This Eckhart Tolle would refer to as the pain body, uh, a, a different aspect of the ego. At the root of much, if not all, violence, whether verbal, psychological, or physical, whether among family members, tribes, or nations, is a kind of thinking that attributes the cause of conflict to wrongness in one's adversaries and a corresponding inability to think of oneself or others in terms of vulnerability. That is, what one might be feeling, fearing, yearning for, missing, etc. And people can definitely misconstrue this entire concept and be like, well, there is wrong and right. Of course, again, there are shared common values that we as a human race, pretty much agree upon. <laughs> but what's being articulated here is the difference in communication and the importance of compassion and the progress that that can make in terms of actually eliminating the most awful, horrendous, horrific, inhumane things that people commit. Let's move forward to the next form of life-alienating communication, which is making comparisons. He alludes to a book that I've actually read and enjoyed called How to Make Yourself Miserable by Dan Greenberg, in which he suggests that if readers have a sincere desire to make life miserable for themselves, they might learn to compare themselves to other people. And there's a few exercises in the book, one where there are full-length pictures of a man and a woman who embody ideal physical beauty standards, 
and readers are instructed to take their own body measurements, compare them to the superimposed ones on the pictures of the attractive specimens, and just dwell on the differences. They do the same thing with accomplishments by comparing what uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had achieved, the list of languages that he spoke by the time he was a teenager, what he had composed at that time, and then listing your own accomplishments again and comparing those to Mozart's, right? Even readers who never emerge, Marshall Rosenberg writes, from the self-induced misery of that exercise might see how powerfully this type of thinking blocks compassion, both for oneself and for other people. Comparison really is the thief of joy. Especially as parents, I want you to notice if you have a sibling dynamic in your household with your oldest children, notice how often you step into that comparison otherwise known as judgment zone with them well your brother doesn't do that if only you could do what your sister does or notice if that's something that came up for you a lot if it's something that you still do to this day maybe you operate there because again the voice of the inner critical parent was so strong when it came to this and notice how there really is truly no compassion there, no connection there. We, we step away from life and humanity when we are operating in this form of communication. So eliminating comparisons, not just for the people that we love in our life, and it could be your spouse. You could be comparing them to someone else. You could, could be comparing them to the expectation that you have in your mind, I also like that expression that says expectations are premeditated resentments. But when we create this comparison dynamic, there's really no winning for anybody. We suffer too, and that's a pretty common theme throughout this entire book. The next form of life-alienating communication is denial of responsibility. Communication is life-alienating when it clouds our awareness that we are each responsible for our own thoughts, feelings, and actions. The use of the common expression have to, as in there are some things you have to do whether you like it or not, illustrates how personal responsibility for our actions can be obscured in speech. The phrase makes one feel, as in you make me feel guilty, is another example of how language facilitates denial of personal responsibility for our own feelings and thoughts. When we deny responsibility for our actions by attributing their cause to factors outside of ourselves, it might sound like the following things. Vague impersonal forces. I cleaned my room because I had to. Well, you have the ability to either clean your room or not clean your room. There have to be more specific <laughs> details here that allow you to take personal responsibility for what you do, why you do it, what you feel and what you think, why you feel and think that way. Our condition, diagnosis, or personal or psychological history. Example, I drink because I'm an alcoholic. The actions of others, I hit my child because he ran into the street. That's huge for me. For some reason, everybody's kids are running into the road. I, this is the most common angry comment that I get. Well, what about running into the street? Well, I think it's important to keep our children safe. And I can't believe I'm even addressing this here. But 
there is absolutely no reason for us to become so out of control emotionally that we also become out of control physically and decide to harm someone else. It also doesn't teach anyone anything about street safety. Maybe go to safety town or belt your children in or wear them or put them into a cart immediately following exiting the car. Bring the cart to the car, put the children immediately in it so that they are not in the parking lot at any point in time. If they cannot walk on the sidewalk without running into the road, prepare yourself for that circumstance. Know that and only allow them to run free in a safe environment. Again, take personal responsibility. (laughs) You don't need to do harm to someone else, especially with a developmentally appropriate behavior and rant. The dictates of authority. I lied to the client because the boss told me to. Group pressure. I started smoking because all my friends did. Institutional policies, rules, and regulations. I have to suspend you for this infraction because it's the school policy. Gender roles, social roles, age roles. I hate going to work, but I do it because I'm a husband and a father uncontrollable impulses, I was overcome by my urge to eat the candy bar. (laughs) I like that he says, we can replace language that implies lack of choice with language that acknowledges choice. There's a really good example here during one of his discussions among parents and teachers on the dangers of language that implies absence of choice. A woman objected angrily. She said, but there are some things you just have to do whether you like it or not. And I see nothing wrong with telling my children there are things that they have to do too. I asked for an example of something she had to do. She retorted, that's easy. When I leave here tonight, I have to go home and cook. I hate cooking. I hate it with a passion, but I have been doing it every day for 20 years, even when I've been sick as a dog, because it's one of those things you just have to do. I told her I was sad to hear her spending so much of her life doing something she hated because she felt compelled to, and I just hoped that she might find happier possibilities by learning the language of NVC. I'm pleased to report that she was a fast learner. At the end of the workshop, she actually went home and announced to her family that she no longer wanted to cook. The opportunity for some feedback from her family came three weeks later when her two sons arrived at a workshop. I was curious to know how they had reacted to their mother's announcement. The elder son sighed. Marshall, I just said to myself, thank God. Seeing my puzzled look, he explained, I thought to myself, maybe finally she won't be complaining at every meal. I think it's so interesting how often we do this as parents, especially if you're not operating in the conscious parenting philosophy and practice. I think behaviorist parenting is is in this headspace all the time well like this it's for your own good mentality or it's just it has to be done mentality as opposed to just taking personal responsibility it's so freeing for everyone for our children for ourselves what we model for for our children what they see and hear from us um, and can create and promote so much peace in all of our relationships in our daily life One of the last forms of life alienating communication that Marshall Rosenberg covers is communicating our desires as demands. It's another way that we can block compassion and build resentment. 
A demand explicitly or implicitly threatens listeners with blame or punishment if they fail to comply. It's a common form of communication in our culture, especially among those who hold positions of authority or believe that they do. In my opinion, it's an illusion of authority that we get into the mindset of if we're using behaviorist tactics on our children. It's it's just an illusion because you can't own anyone and you can't make people really do anything. I mean, if you talk to a parent, I mean, if you are a parent, you know, trying to can be extremely exhausting because it just is not the way that we are designed. This is actually Marshall Rosenberg's writing here referring to this very thing. My children gave me some invaluable lessons about demands. Somehow I had gotten it into my head that as a parent, my job was to make demands. I learned, however, that I could make all the demands in the world, but still couldn't make my children do anything. This is a humbling lesson in power for those of us who believe that because we're a parent, teacher, or manager, our job is to change other people and make them behave. Here were these youngsters letting me know that I couldn't make them do anything. All I could do was make them wish they had through punishment. Then eventually they taught me that anytime I was foolish enough to make them wish they had complied by punishing them, they had ways of making me wish that I hadn't. Hmm. It's an interesting thing, this ongoing cycle of manipulation. (laughs) When children feel that they are an object that is attempted to be owned and controlled, they have really one of two responses typically, and one is to basically externalize this feeling of non-acceptance that they're experiencing from their parent and say, I don't care. I'll do what I want. I will be what I want. Um, In fact, I will use these very tools you're using on me, on you. Um, And then there's also the internalizer, someone, I I was this child who becomes the ultimate people pleaser, who internalizes the shame and says, I am bad, but if I am good if I perform enough well enough then I will be lovable and worthy of connection and therefore just move through life basically in this persona for so many years obviously not a completely inauthentic version of me but really unable to express my own needs or perspective in a clear honest way much of the time I was really only only presenting certain parts of myself. So not pretending to be anyone, but definitely concealing parts of myself that were authentic to me and my experience and even just concealing my point of view or my needs. This is a huge commonality among many of us that were the internalizer or also the externalizer is doing the exact same thing just in a more, mm, I think, uh, amazing way when I look at you know my own older brother who was definitely the externalizer like you can't control me type of personality actually my younger sister kind of falls into that category as well and my younger brother ended up like me you know we were diseased to please people but our other siblings were definitely the externalizers you can't control me you can't own me I will push back I will fight back but all the while they have the exact same unmet needs that we had. Uh, they just are expressing them differently and start trying to protect themselves in a different way. Well, if 
I'm getting the messaging subconsciously that your love for me is conditional, then I'm going to just tell myself that I don't care if you love me or not. I don't care if you like what I'm doing or if you like who I am. I don't care. But obviously, they care. <laughs> so it's just, it's just a very interesting aspect of how this applies to parenting and and to hear someone so amazing still go through these struggles with their own children it's almost like when I read Gabor Matei's work or hear him speak about being a parent and not having the tools or not applying the very tools that they teach now or taught when they wrote whatever work it is that I was reading like nonviolent communication for example he's writing this from the perspective of someone whose children are already grown but the very concepts that they're sharing would have been completely transformative had they been applied to the parent-child relationship it's it's so fascinating to me this little excerpt says thinking based on who deserves what blocks compassionate communication he says it assumes badness, you know, he deserves to be punished for what he did, assumes badness on the part of people who behave in certain ways, and it calls for punishment to make them repent and change their behavior. I believe it's in everyone's interest that people change, not in order to avoid punishment, but because they see the change as benefiting themselves. I talk about this often when discussing the very concept of behaviorism and why it is detrimental to society it's detrimental to the individual when people don't know why they do what they do other than they're afraid of being bad they're afraid of not being worthy of connection they aren't they aren't even learning the very concepts that we want them to learn you know our children for instance if they are learning not to hit someone because they're scared you will hit them in response, you don't love them when they act that way. You make them go be alone, isolated, cry to themselves until they can calm down and be in your presence again, be worthy of you again when they're silent, content, and obedient to you, like some sort of animal. Um, so, so quickly, it doesn't take many experiences like that for our children to develop an awareness, an acute awareness, especially because it's in our biological needs to be connected with by our, par our parents. So we, for survival, have to adapt. We, we had to adapt as children, as little babies, to what it was, like what were the signals and the communication keys that our parents were giving us that made us more lovable, that made them more attentive to us. And all of it just, it, it's so interesting to me. It, it actually baffles me that people continue to try to manipulate and change the behavior um, rooted in, in fear tactics all the while, they're scared of their children not actually developing a moral compass. They're scared of their children not having an understanding of their values when really they're not actually teaching the real reasoning behind why we want to eliminate certain behavior, why certain things are not appropriate based on our own personal values and convictions. And I think when some people have that epiphany there, they can move away from using utilizing behaviorism and into a more conscious approach where we do use nonviolent communication we do view the child as a whole person and we start to get very curious about the behavior we start to get 
good at investigating what is developmentally appropriate what should i expect at this time like what what makes sense for my child's brain what makes sense for my child's nervous system what about the environment and we start to ask questions as opposed to just coming from this fear-based crazy place of judgment that really gets us nowhere that is as marshall rosenberg puts it life alienating we want our children to know why they do what they do and why they don't do certain things not because i don't know i'm scared i'm going to get in trouble we want them to know like that just doesn't serve me or my mind you know that that doesn't bless my heart it doesn't bless my mind or that is going to create fear in my body or that's going to be i don't know even things that are just dangerous it's not oh i'm scared to run into the street because i don't want to get spanked i don't want my mom to grip me and rip me back onto the sidewalk i want to be i'm afraid that when there is a car coming i will be struck by it (laughs) there is traffic in the road and also at the same time sometimes there's not traffic in the road sometimes you could be in the middle of the street and not get hit by a car as long as you have some actual awareness of what real safety looks like and is this is where we get into objective parenting, like objectivist parenting and conscious parenting and, and the difference uh, versus this and other mainstream parenting philosophy. There's such specific nuance, but that's really it. It's like we want our children to be in reality, to know why they do what they do and to really navigate life in a realistic way. He writes here that most of us grew up speaking a language that encourages us to label, compare, demand, and pronounce judgments rather than to be aware of what we are feeling and needing. In fact, I would argue that the majority of us are not only encouraged to do the opposite, you know, not be aware of it, but to really shut it down. Don't you're fine is something that I continue to hear on a daily basis when I'm in an environment with a lot of young children. As soon as anybody's uncomfortable, there's any sign of tension, discomfort, or upset, you're fine, you're fine, shut it down. Don't be aware of what you're feeling and why you're feeling that, what your needs are. No, it's making me uncomfortable. Stop it right there and be fine be content with me. This form of communication that really stresses how humans are just innately so evil and and deficient and need to be educated to control our inherently undesirable nature really leaves us questioning sometimes whether there's something wrong with whatever feelings and needs we might be experiencing, which again further cuts us off from understanding them and becoming emotionally healthy people that stops us from connecting with other people and being compassionate toward other people and also just being blatantly aware of what's really happening. We've gotten so conditioned for so long to just start with anytime anyone's uncomfortable in any capacity there's something wrong with them there there's something wrong with their character they are flawed as opposed to actually just being like hmm, is that a normal part of the human experience to have hard moments and ups and downs emotional ups and downs where we're confused or disappointed or scared or 
we don't feel good enough and so our behavior is a reflection of that and and on a positive note and we're actually going to wrap this episode on this discussion point when we implement nonviolent communication and when we introduce that to our own relationships and model that for our children we set them up for the opposite style of communicating the opposite language not the shame language the moralistic judgment language they're able to understand what they're feeling and why what they're needing and where that need comes from uh, the awareness around how to make a request in an objective clear direct loving way and Therefore, I think all of the disappointment, the confusion, discomfort, fear, and insert any uncomfortable emotional experience that your child will inevitably have here is so much easier to deal with on on their end, right? This is going to promote so much peace for them because they can simply identify okay like this is what I'm feeling and this because I need this okay and so I should make this request I think it just would help people process their emotions in such a healthy way and help relationships flourish and and really become this healthy safe space that so many of us really want our relationships to be where we do feel seen, heard, and understood, and we're truly connected with on a deeper level. That's what we want for our, the parent-child relationship that we are developing or that we are maybe working on or trying to kind of get a better understanding of what we want in that area or maybe our marriages. I just think that this is a shared common desire that so many of us have but don't have the tool set to accomplish and that is what we're going to talk about in the next couple of mini book club episodes here on the mellow mama podcast and i am really looking forward to that i hope that this has been a great introduction for all of you listening i hope that you are as excited as i am to continue to maybe pick up this book for yourself and start listening or reading to it It is truly, again, a transformational piece of material that I think you'll find yourself rereading and revisiting so often. It's extremely powerful, especially when put into practice. I'm so grateful for all of you that listen to this podcast. I truly believe that implementing the work that I share in your own relationships, in your own households, can change the world. And while that might feel or sound dramatic, I think I really mean it, and I know the impact of even just one person feeling seen, heard, and connected with, let alone many people, and many people relating to one another with the intrinsic confidence and self-esteem that comes when we feel seen and heard, and we don't have to work so hard to have our needs met. Moving away from that fear-based conditioning and mindset and that scarcity mode, (laughs) my daughter's here now. Hi, Romy. <laughs> and and also that frame of mind where insecurity is, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, 
really running our days and running our responses and reactions to the people that we love in our lives, as well as just the everyday circumstances that we experience. What an impact it's making for even just one person to build more awareness. <laughs> I'm cracking up the end of this episode, of course. <laughs> Everybody that's a parent is like, mm-hmm, yep, of course, there's a plastic potty being moved from room to room <laughs> as I record. But anyway, you know, moving from that to that true sense of self-confidence, self-esteem and presence is not only going to promote peace, but it's also going to promote what comes with peace and presence, which is like lightheartedness and fun and joy and just romanticizing life in everyday little moments, truly just enjoying and being fulfilled by being alive. And that, again, is just so amazing to me to consider And I'm so grateful that each and every one of you are contributing to that. Thank you so much for listening today and any other time that you've listened to the podcast. If you love this podcast, if you love this episode or have a favorite episode, please do me a favor. I'll I'll share a personal goal with all of you that is to get into, by the end of this year, the top 10 rankings for parenting podcasts on Apple and Spotify podcasts. I just want to get into the ears and hands of as many people that want to parent more consciously or want to just live more consciously as possible and all of you help me to do that just by listening so again thank you from the bottom of my heart so much you're helping me accomplish my dreams of helping as many people as i possibly can and if you want to take it a step further and screenshot a favorite episode and tag me on social media i will share it as well it might be a really fun way for us to get in closer connection to maybe get into conversation i just appreciate each and every one of you so much so please feel free and in fact be excited with me about my goal let's grow together let's grow this community and this podcast together help other people get on the same page and feel that sense of peace and joy and presence in their day-to-day lives if you're interested in enrolling in my online course please go to www.themellowmama.org you can enroll there anytime and anytime that you enroll you are grandfathered into any of the changes that are coming and there are some amazing updates coming to the course in the coming year I'm very, very excited about them. And if you're enjoying the work of this podcast episode today and the former podcast episodes, the mini book club ones, you're really going to love the course updates. They're so relevant and so pinpointed to certain aspects that I think really just go hand in hand and that are so necessary for implementing conscious parenting concepts in real time. So check out the course, enroll in the course. We have course calls every other Sunday as a community that are just so enriching and special and just allow us to really get in touch on a deeper level as a community. And I just, I love being a part of it so much. So I know you will too. Also, follow me on YouTube. I'll be sharing more there this year, and I'm really excited to get back to that long-form storytelling content that I just truly enjoy. Maybe some vlogging here and there, but that's really my social media platform of origin, if you will, and I love it so much. So I'll be getting back there. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Check me out on Instagram and TikTok, at the Mellow Mama or at the Mellow Mama underscore. And I just hope you have an amazing, beautiful, peaceful day. I will see you on the next episode. Bye-bye.